Welcome to the Grassy Knoll on Dade City Micro Radio, AM 1610 WDCX. want to remind everybody, of course, that come July 1st, we'll be going to Fridays from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Uh, we'll go the Wednesday before that, but again, come July 1st, Fridays, 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. With us today on the Grassy Knoll is a Kennedy from the state of Massachusetts, and that would be Bill Kennedy the author of Lucifer's Lodge, Satanic Ritual Abuse in the Catholic Church, and a soon-to-be-released title, Satanic Crime, A Threat in the New Millennium. And, Bill, we want to welcome you to the Grassy Knoll. Very nice to be here, Viz. Also, for those of you who are on the net and listening to this, if you can and want to, uh, he has a website, and that would be www.williamhkennedy.com. Now, we've had uh, a number of people come on to approach this ritual abuse uh, issue uh, from several different uh, viewpoints. Uh, what got you on the trail of this? Well, it's uh, quite interesting, Viz, because um, in 1996, I went and met Malachi Martin, sometimes pronounced Malachi Martin on the radio, uh, who was a Catholic writer in New York who was a novelist and uh, non-fiction writer. He wrote primarily about the Catholic Church. And I went down there to collect some biographical information on him for a book I was thinking about writing about Catholic priests. Now, uh, there again, this was 1996, and what Father Martin told me back then was that Cardinal Bernard Law of Boston, uh, who was the in charge of the Catholic Church up here in the Archdiocese of Boston, was running a pedophile ring, and that some of these pedophiles were Satanists. Now, in 1996, I just took that as a kind of ridiculous statement, and I did not, you know, believe Father Martin at the time. Now, over the course of the next few years, I spoke to Father Martin about once a month, until uh, about six months before he died in 1999, and he would always bring this up, and I would always roll my eyes on the phone. And I used to say to him, well, you know, I think you might just be getting crank letters. He used to claim he was getting letters from victims up here in Boston that said that Catholic priests had molested them as kids, and some of these priests were Satanists. There again. Now, just to fast forward a bit, uh, after Father Martin died in 1999, in 2002, the Boston Globe broke a story that Cardinal Bernard Law of Boston was, in fact, running a pedophile ring of Catholic priests. And what I did then for the next year and a half is I just sat back and uh, collected newspaper items from the mainstream media about the priest pedophile scandal. And what I did is I just waited for cases that had satanic ritual abuse elements in them. Now, I didn't have to wait very long. A couple months after that January 2002 initial break of the story, the Boston Globe reported that Monsignor Frederick Ryan, who was the vice chancellor of the Archdiocese of Boston, had sexually abused a boy in the 1980s, and he had tattooed this fellow with a devil figure on his inner thigh. Now, there again, this is the Boston Globe reporting this. Mm -hmm. And uh, what he had done, Monsignor Frederick Ryan, is he took photographs of this boy uh, in the nude after he sexually abused him, 
and he used this photograph to blackmail him into being his homosexual lover for many, many years, and even insisted on officiating at this man's wedding many years later. Um, now, in occult lore, a tattoo like that is called the Devil's Mark, and that is an initiation tattoo that is used by covens to bring new members in. Um, now, what I did is I collected a bunch of these stories that were very similar, and I paraphrased them a bit and put an introduction, and that is the book Lucifer's Lodge, Satanic Ritual Abuse in the Catholic Church. And I'm in the middle of publishers right now. I'm switching publishers, and I'm expanding the book Lucifer's Lodge. I'll have three more chapters on three more Satanic Ritual cases and I'll have a full photo section, and that should be out in the fall of 2005. Let me ask you this, because I, I have a question about uh, the scandal that broke, I guess, what was it, two years ago? Uh, yeah, 2002. Right. Now, I'm wondering, because I don't know how you believe, Bill, but you know, on this show and the listeners, we don't believe that anything gets out in the mainstream news unless it's managed. So it's very interesting that, yes, you got the Globe coming out with a story about this, exposing it, so I can't help, because, I mean, there's so many other conspiracies that are suppressed. So I'm, th I'm thinking to myself, is this payback to the Catholic Church? And if so, who benefits? Okay, this is a rare case of the mainstream media actually legitimately breaking a case. Now, what the Boston Globe did is in 1993, there was a priest named Father James Porter who was exposed as a pedophile. And the Boston Globe put a team of reporters on examining and trying to uncover if there are any more pedophile priests in the Archdiocese of Boston. Uh, what happened with the Boston Globe is they petitioned and received permission to look at some of the church's files. And how they did that was through the Attorney General of Massachusetts, a guy named Thomas Riley. And Thomas Riley first uh, forced the Archdiocese of Boston to release their secret files on pedophile priests. So I know most cases uh, it's a matter of management when it gets out in the mainstream media, but there are exceptions, and this is one of the exceptions, and the Boston Globe won the Pulitzer Prize for doing so. Uh, I've looked through most of these official secret church documents, and uh, there are even cases of ritual abuse that came out from them which never would have if Thomas Riley hadn't ordered these files released. You know, I don't doubt that the journalism in this case was legitimate, and this is my take, and I'm, you know, I'm not forcing you to go down that road. But I, I still think that it's interesting, much like um, thinking back to the Watergate story, that when stuff like this is exposed, uh, it, I believe it's usually because there's a point to it, there's a payback somewhere, someone's going down, and so they get um, the powers that be get very cozy with the press, and therefore, you know, we have the situation exposed. Um, in the case, of course, of, of Watergate, um, you know, I, I've said this, like Woodward and Bernstein were spoon-fed that story. Ray Charles could have written that thing. So, I mean, I don't see this as being a big journalistic coup back then. This one, however, may have gone that, that way. It may have, it may well, have been... Well, the, the big thing that happened is, and there were helpers inside the Archdiocese of Boston when they released, they were, originally they were ordered to release only the files of priests that were accused of pedophilia, that is sex with a pre-adolescent boy or girl. 
but they released other files too. Um, very strange. Someone in in the chancery of the Archdiocese of Boston put files in there that the judge didn't want, and I don't think the Archdiocese necessarily wanted the press mm-hmm. to get. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the thing. So what part of what you're saying is right. There was definitely a leak in the chancery. It wasn't. It wasn't all the doing of the newspaper or the attorney general or the archdiocese. There were there were documents linked, uh, leaked to the general public that were never meant to be. So someone in there kind of had a deep throat type uh, position in right. this case. Uh, do you know that this went back to any political figures of note? This uh, abuse? Uh, no, no, no political figures came into play in the records that were released, which was just about all the records concerned. Uh, there was no one politically involved that, that came out. It was mostly cases of degenerate priests who were sexually abusing preteen boys and sometimes women, and they were transferred to new parishes by cardinal law mm-hmm. without giving the new parish any sort of warning or anything at all. They were just tried to keep covering up, and they kept shifting. Now, consider in Massachusetts, Cardinal Bernard Law had to resign as Archbishop of Boston, because of this pedophile scandal, he did not face criminal charges. And the Bishop of Springfield, Massachusetts, Bishop Dupre, had to resign because he himself was a pedophile. So what we're looking at here is a, a hierarchical cabal mm-hmm. of protecting and promoting pedophile priests and those who protect pedophile priests within the church structure. It's a top-down problem. What I like to say is that the oldest symbol of the Christian church is a fish, and a fish rots from the head down. And that's what we're looking at. It's a mm-hmm. top-down problem. These people never would have survived or been able to operate if they did not receive the support of the bishops and cardinals. Now, the Dallas Morning News reports from their examination, two-thirds of all Roman Catholic cardinals and bishops in the world knowingly and willfully transferred pedophile priests with the full knowledge that they would sexually abuse other women and children. So we're looking at a major, major worldwide scandal here. Uh, were there any particular orders that popped up uh, in this scandal, more so than others? Religious order? Yeah. Um, what what the the uh Dallas Morning News came out with the fact that the uh Franciscans and the Jesuits uh were transferring priests internationally mm-hmm. to uh for example if a priest sexually abused someone in Guatemala and they were a Franciscan they transfer them to England or Germany so the Jesuits and the Franciscans and the Salian priests, especially, have a huge international pedophile problem where they transfer pedophile priests on an international level. So you're looking at a, a, a microcosm of this in each diocese. Priests are transferred from parish to parish within a diocese, and globally, members of religious orders who are pedophiles, like in the Franciscans, Jesuits, they are transferred internationally. And this is all to avoid scandal and criminal prosecution. Uh, with Mal- I'm going to take a little sidebar here for a second, and we'll get back into uh, the flow. Sure. But um, Malachi Martin. Right. 
did he uh, dialogue at all with you about the Jesuits? Uh, yes, he did. He said there was a huge pedophile problem within the Jesuit order, and it pretty much was confirmed by what the uh, Dallas Morning News reported. Uh, the funny thing about Father Martin is he always was very ambivalent about the Jesuits right. because he was a Jesuit at one time. He left the order but remained a Catholic priest. And uh, the thing is, he would always have good and bad things to say about it, you know. They they did educate him, and they did a very good job with him. But he felt it had become a corrupt organization, and he even wrote a book about it called The Jesuits. Yeah, I, I, I can't tell you I read that in depth. I didn't think he got to the core. I, I think he pulled some punches. Uh, we've had on this show Eric John Phelps and Charles T. Wilcox, both of whom have written books about uh, the Jesuits and the Vatican. Uh, Eric's, are you familiar with Eric's work? I, I've seen it, yeah. All right. Um, and uh, Eric treated it more across the centuries where uh, Wilcox kind of um, focused on the uh, Civil War and what was going on there. Um, but now getting back into what we were doing, again, uh, taking it one step past the Jesuits, uh, any uh, Vatican involvement? Any um, Huge Vatican involvement. Huge Vatican involvement. And that includes our former... Pope, Pope John Paul II, and our current Pope, Pope Benedict, both of these rascals knew of the entire global situation of the transferring of pedophile priests both within diocese and internationally, and they did everything they could do to protect these pedophile priests. Now, our current Pope, Pope Benedict, in uh, 2003, he sent out a message to all the bishops and cardinals in the world that a 1960s Vatican document, uh, which basically told all of the cardinals and bishops in the world to transfer pedophile priests and avoid scandal, was still in effect. Okay? Mm -hmm. So when, this, when the stuff started to hit the fan, so to speak, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time told everyone that, the, that this older document was still valid and that they should follow the same old rules that's basically remain silent with the press and keep transferring these pedophile priests and i tell you something right now viz as we speak the roman catholic church under pope benedict is still protecting pedophile priests who are sexually abusing children somewhere in the world as we speak i think the two biggest horrors that people don't really want to believe in and certainly are shielded from to begin with but if they were to be approached with this information the two biggest horrible scandals is global sex slaving and ritual abuse and the other would be global narcotic trafficking right the whole war on drugs we're not you know this is obviously not your bailiwick but the war on drugs is an absolute joke i mean it, oh it's yeah it's it, yeah well, you have to remember, when the government declares war on something, mm -hmm. the opposite usually happens. For example, they declared a war on poverty in the 70s. Now there's more poor people than ever. They declared a war on drugs, and then the inner cities were flooded with crack cocaine in the 80s. So when you hear a war on something, expect the opposite if it's coming from the government. We're speaking with William H. Kennedy, author of Lucifer's Lodge, Satanic Ritual Abuse in the Catholic Church, about which we're speaking right now. His other title is Satanic Crime, A Threat in the New Millennium. And uh, let me ask you about that, Bill. Um, how far along is that from being um, um, put out on the market? 
It will come out sometime this summer, uh, I would think in late June or July. It's being published by Dragon Key Press, which is out on the West Coast, uh, United States. We got a, it has a full photo section, so it, there's a slight delay because we have to get uh, permission from, you know, UPS and, uh, I'm sorry, United Press International <laughs> and uh, the Associated Press to use these photographs. UPS okay. will let us mail anything. That was a plan. <laughs> uh, the uh, thing is we have to uh, get a few odds and ends together and it will be out. Now, Satanic Crime, A Threat in the New Millennium, and there's a, the first chapter of that book in the photo section is free on my webpage, williamhkennedy.com, and people can take a look at it. Now, that first chapter is called A Brief History of Modern Satanism, and it traces the Satanism movement from uh, Aleister Crowley through Anton LaVey and Michael Aquino and mm-hmm. the Process Church of Final Judgment and uh, some other spin-off groups of uh, this sort of Satanism. It also has a section on the Skull and Bone Society, which I believe is a satanic organization. Mm-hmm. So that's worth taking a look at it in and of itself. And it's a pretty independent chapter. You get a lot out of it. And there again, it's at WilliamHKennedy.com, and it's free. Uh, again, last speaking about the um, the hardness of these scandals. Um, what was the uh, the acceptance like by the public? Um, it was surprisingly good. You have to remember, this. what I did in this book is I really didn't do any research for this book. The Boston Globe, Irish Times, Boston Herald, and a few other mainstream media outlets were kind enough to do it for me. Uh, I pulled together these stories from these news agencies and put them together in a book. And, of, of course, I paraphrase, but it's also a very well-documented book. Every, every uh, chapter has... End notes right at the end, you know, 30, 40, 50 end notes. And uh, the, the public reaction, people were already stunned and shocked before the book came out, and this book just reaffirmed their stun and shock. Now, what surprises me is that um, how many people are accepting that, you know, when you're dealing something as nefarious, with something as nefarious as pedophilia, you're just... Uh, bound to get diabolical elements like Satanism, and that doesn't seem to surprise people too much. People aren't too stunned by the fact that someone who would rape a kid would also be involved in Satanic rituals. It doesn't seem too far-fetched. And I thought people would have a hard time accepting it, but they don't. What about trying to get a publisher for this kind of uh, uh, hot-button topic? Um, It was wasn't too tough. I got a, my original publisher was Sophia Perennis, which is an academic press, and they, they, they were pretty good about doing it. Um, I switched publishers because I want to bring the price down and get a photo section in it, which uh, an academic press, they tend to be poorer and unable mm-hmm. to do such things, but it wasn't too difficult. Um, the big thing is, uh, the major way to get a, a, a book about bestseller in this country is to have Barnes and Noble and Borders order a couple of copies for each of their stores. That's how that's how bestsellers are determined. And those two those two companies ordered my book not in all their stores but uh, just in the Northeast. And I uh, it sold better than I had originally anticipated, to be honest. Yeah. uh, Well, you know. That whole idea about mass merchandising books has also brought another uh, death blow 
to people who are trying to get out perhaps unpopular work, but nevertheless crucial. Um, I had, just as an aside, say when I look back in the 50s, the ones who were, uh, the authors who were really trying to get people to understand what was going on behind the curtain was uh, Devin Adair. Um, I don't even know if they're around anymore. I, I, I don't think so, but I had a, I was surprised at seeing that. Also, Huntington House recently has, has still been a voice for those who want to get out this kind of information that so often is cloaked by mainstream media. Um, going back to uh, any other kind of uh, affiliations with this uh, ritualistic abuse, did you encounter, um, let's say, uh, personages in the Knights of Malta? Um, I did not. However, some um, people in the Knights of Malta did appear in um, a list. Uh, now, I'll just have to explain this very quickly. Sure. There was a fellow named Marc Dutroux, who was a Belgian, who was arrested in 1996 for being a sex slave, slave trafficker of pre-adolescent girls and teenage girls uh, over in Belgium. Now, um, what had happened was when he was on trial, he was just sent to jail for life last year in 2004, he, uh, the judge who was trying him asked for women to come forward who were former victims of uh, his cabal. You know, he had people who worked with him. And ten women came forward, and um, they gave a list of people they saw at these orgies that Dutroux used to organize for them. And they were members of the Knights of Malta. I don't want to say their names, but right. I can give you a few other names uh, the king of Belgium himself was identified as being at these sex orgies organized by Dutroux. And not only that, but uh, Dutroux had murdered one of his partners. And going through his partner's uh, personal effects, the police found a letter from a satanic high priest asking for children for a ritual they were going to perform on April 30th, which is a satanic holiday. So uh, with the Mark Dutroux affair... You see a nexus of things like the Bilderbergers, the Knights of Malta, Satanism, and pedophilia all coming together in one location. And that's, I have a whole section on that in my last chapter of Satanic Crime. Uh, now, I should say that within the Dutroux affair, there were no Catholic priests identified, but there were high-ranking political officials well, uh, in Belgium and Europe and internationally. And there's a book called The Pedophile Dossier, which is out. It's in French, but I'm going to try and get it translated in English, which actually gives a testimony of these ten women who came forward to give their accounts. Now, it's funny. After they gave their accounts, the king of Belgium removed this judge from the case and put another one in who discounted their testimonies. Uh, you mentioned dates, and it just made me uh, think of, um, in your research, or even in your reading that may not have gotten into the book, um, have you come across any special activities around the dates, say, of the uh, winter solstice and the summer solstice? Now, that's very strange. I, I assume that apart from that uh, letter, no. But from what I do know these, these, from the Dutroux affair, these people somewhere in Europe or in the world, there's even weekly orgies. Now, um, there is a member of the Belgian parliament, a woman named Alexandra Cohen, who uh, has an article out on the web, and I will send you a copy of it. Okay. Uh, she pointed out that they had a um, parliamentary inquiry, which is kind of like a congressional inquiry. It's not a trial, 
but people are asked to come forward and are questioned. Now, some police came before this Belgian Parliament inquiry concerning the Dutroux affair, and uh, the police admitted that these sex orgies did go on under oath in the Belgian Parliament. Now, that did not make them criminally liable, but the police did admit to complicity in these orgies, which had been rumored for years in Belgium, and people call them the King's Pink Ballets. That's what these weird orgy rituals were called. So we have confirmation from the Belgian police via the Belgian parliament that these things did occur. Well, you know what's coming back to me? Am I correct in, in um, stating that it also revolved around one particular uh, mansion? Now, it's very, very strange because um, Mark Dutroux owned seven houses, maybe even eight, but seven were in his name all around Belgium, which had dungeons in which he would keep his captive girls in underneath. Now, he was a, an unemployed electrician who was on a psychiatric state disability, kind of like uh, SSDI here, Social Security right. Insurance. How he could afford these uh, houses is, is a whole other question. But there was one mansion in particular that was mentioned by all of these girls that was in Belgium. Excuse me for this quip, but when you said how how in the world could he have saved for it, it reminds me of the old uh, Clouseau movies when Clouseau's wife buys his you know wonderful car, and uh, Clouseau can't figure it out. So one of his uh, sidekicks says, "But how did she save for the car?" And he goes, "In the cookie jar." So anyway, right, 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 right. Never mind. Little yeah. uh, little levity there. But uh, getting back into this, uh, how are the prostitutes and the victims? Uh, acquired. I mean, is there like a whole phalanx, let's say, of uh, MK Ultra tools? Or well, know? it's very interesting when you look at the Dutroux affair. Um, what he did is he kidnapped. He he used to like to get preteen girls, and what he would do initially with them is he had these very sparse dungeons constructed, uh, dug into the ground underneath his house, and he constructed them so well that even when the police came to search one of these houses with dogs. The dogs could not sniff through. There were actually girls locked in these dungeons in the basement. What he would do is he would use sensory deprivation and, you know, rape them and photograph them in uh, these very small dungeons. And what happened over time is they developed what's known as the Stockholm Syndrome. And that is a case wherein a kidnapped victim starts to identify and and cooperate with their abductor. It's a very strange mental dynamic. It stems from the fact that these victims know that their captor has the power to kill them, but chooses not to do so. And from some bizarre mechanism of the mind, people become almost grateful or see their captor as a savior figure. And the most common and well-known story like this is that of Patty, Patty Hearst, Hearst that's right. mm -hmm. who was kidnapped by the Simonese Liberation Army in the 70s. Now, Patty Hearst was a rich socialite who was go 20 years old and going to Berkeley University, mm -hmm. and she was kidnapped by this radical group and kept in a closet and given LSD and raped. And like a few months after she was kidnapped and taken, she was in robbing banks with them. Mm -hmm. You know, she identified with her aggressors. Now, the big thing about the Stockholm Syndrome is once people get into that mode, the victim, 
they will do things that are against their own uh, best interests, and they will do things that are contrary to what they did before they were kidnapped. Now, Patty Hearst was an heir to the Hearst newspaper fortune, and she was a Berkeley student who wanted to become a clothing designer. Robbing banks was not in her purview <laughs> before she was kidnapped. So that's an example of the Stockholm Syndrome, and that is what you see with these girls who were kidnapped by Dutro. It was a form of brainwashing, and he would uh, use, the, use these dungeons to do it primarily. He would leave them down there for about six months, and by the time they came out of those dungeons, they had been you know, raped and humiliated and everything you can imagine. They were, they were pretty much Manchurian candidates for his sex slave outfit. But are these um, who are used, uh, I mean, are these runaway kids? That get... No, no, no. He grabbed kids from the general population. Well, are we talking abductions? Abduction, yes. When uh, I would ask you, um, I'm sorry, finish that, William, and I'll ask. No, he would basically grab preteen girls in parks and uh, schoolyards and things like that. And he had cohorts, and, he, uh, and Dutroux also claims that he had police officers who helped him do this. Members of the uh, Belgian police force were also involved with this ring. What do you think when you hear of yet another story of, um, especially it seems to be a young female, uh, probably even maybe pre-puberty, uh, when they're taken, uh, and oftentimes from their residency, residences? Sure. What, what goes through your mind when you hear that? Well, I think it's one of these um, sex slave operating groups taking them. You know? Yes. I, I, I honestly, honestly think that. And you'll get a lone nut like in the Elizabeth Smart case yeah. who'll do this. But I think on the whole, it's usually one of these international sex slave trade rings, which, which you know, even the mainstream media acknowledges that it, it, it's pretty huge, you know? Um, have you ever heard of Kathleen Sullivan? I have heard of Kathleen okay. Sullivan. Is she the girl who claimed to have been abducted or raped by her father? Well, well, you know, that covers a lot of people, unfortunately. She wrote a book called Unshackled, and um, she was saying that her father was a Nazi uh, hiding out in um, Pennsylvania, Dutch Pennsylvania, and um, raised her up to be whatever she had to be. And this is one of the situations, and this is where I was heading. Um, I don't know that you came across this, but let, let me know. Are you seeing a frequency of say, kids that are absolutely raised by their parents or father or whatever uh, to be uh, used in this manner? I have heard of it, and I've read interviews uh, with Kathy Sullivan. I mean, she says some strange stuff. She claims she was sexually abused as a baby, if I remember correctly. But, um, yes, I have heard of some parents actually doing this, and they just caught a fellow here. I think it was in Massachusetts or around here, and I'll look it up on the Internet. But uh, he went to a Walmart or uh, somewhere like that and tried to uh, develop some photographs of his own daughter, who and they were actually kiddie porn photos. So you do hear about things like that, sure. Yeah, that's another one that's very hard to digest. I mean, let's face it. That's that. I mean, that that goes right to the core of evil. And, and along those lines, but let, well, first let me also say that you're listening to the Grassy Knoll on Dade City Micro Radio, AM 1610 WDCX, and we have with us William H. Kennedy. Uh, we're talking about his book right now, Lucifer's Lodge. His website is WilliamHKennedy.com. And you also said for the book that's coming out, Satanic Crime Bill, that there is a chapter 
on the net that they can read. Oh, yes, definitely so, yeah. All right. Um, moving along with this idea of um, occultism, I wanted to ask just a couple of more uh, questions about certain specific uh, groups, shall we say. Uh, any trace of Opus Dei in this? Um, Opus Dei, um, they, as of now, have had priests who were, have been accused of pedophilia. Now, they're a very strange group. I should also say I'm, I'm a lifelong Catholic myself, so I'm just making observations about my own church. I'm not Catholic bashing. I'm a Catholic myself, Catholic grammar school graduate and such. So um, if there's any Catholics out there, I, I'm a Catholic too. Um, Opus Dei has had priests who were accused of pedophilia, but uh, no one's really gone after them as far as getting uh, their records because their records are uh, in, in, uh, technically in the Vatican, which is impossible to get. Uh, they're a prelature. They're an odd organization. They have an international hold, but they don't necessarily, their priests don't answer to their cardinals and bishops. They answer to their prelate in Rome who is directly under the pope. And, whose uh, name evades me. I can't think of him. <laughs> which pope? Which pope would that be? Uh, uh, the pope. Uh, no, I'm saying oh. the the prelate of Opus oh, Dei okay. is um, he answers only to the pope, whatever pope is in okay. power at the time. Okay. Our current pope is not Opus Dei, and there's never been an Opus Dei priest who became pope as of yet. Um, but they they tend not to answer to local bishops and cardinals. They tend to answer straightly to the pope himself in Opus Dei. Again, another sidebar question regarding Opus Dei. Um, have you seen them uh, somewhat have a proximity to Ratzinger? Uh, yes, they're very close to uh, Pope Benedict, who used to be Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. He loves them. He is not a member of their group, as I say, but he was always a huge and strong supporter of Opus Dei. Opus Dei is probably the most powerful single organization in the Roman Catholic Church, outside of the, the Curia, which is the Pope's Council. Um, one other question about occult societies. Was there any trace? Now, on, on uh, the, the party line, these two, gr these two organizations apparently don't like one another. I think that may have been a case once upon a time, but I think it's all one happy family now. Any trace of occultic high-degree Freemasonry? Uh, yes. It, it's very, very strange because... Um, when you look at some of these rituals, uh, especially uh, here in Boston, there were sex magic rituals which look a lot like the OTO, which was a Freemasonic spinoff. And there are, uh, you know, there was also connections between the P2 Freemasonic Lodge and the Vatican years ago. But yeah, there are uh, Vatican Freemasonic type rituals merged into. Uh, some of these cases of sexual abuse, and I could give you an example if you'd like. Yeah, I think that would be good. Okay, here in the um, Archdiocese of Boston, we uh, we had two priests who uh, their um, records were released uh, secretly by that person I was talking about earlier who works in the Archdiocese. The first uh, priest I will talk about is Father Robert Methan. Now, what Father Robert Methan did is he recruited young girls to become um, nuns, and these girls were basically uh, 12 or 13. This was back in the 60s and 70s. And back in those days when girls wanted to become nuns, 
they generally went to a special high school when they were 13 or 14, and he would take them, uh, he would recruit them into the Sisters of St. Joseph and take them down to Kingston, Mass., which had this high school, and he would sexually abuse them in secret rituals. Uh, in these sex secret rituals he had with them, uh, he identified himself as Jesus Christ. And what he told them is that they must keep this a secret, and that sexual contact with him uh, would lead to various mystical stages. Now, this sounds a lot like Aleister Crowley, who was a 33rd degree Freemason, mm -hmm. who uh, developed a lot of things uh, from Freemasonry that involved sex rituals. Uh, there was also things where he told one young girl he was the great architect of the universe, I found this out, which is a Masonic term. So within this corpus, you see uh, this very, very strange mix of Roman Catholicism, Freemasonry, and sex rituals within the case of uh, Father Robert Meffin. Now, there was another priest who was doing the same things named Father James Foley, who was up in Salem, Massachusetts, of all places. He was assigned to a, a church there. He had a woman who was his girlfriend who had had a, a lobotomy, and he, too, used to have her worship him as Jesus Christ in sex magic ceremonies. And, you know, he promised her the world as well. And, uh, you know, he attached mystical stages to sexual contact with him. Now, what happened to him, uh, Father James Foley, he kind of uh, lost his discretion and went off his rocker and started to tell people from his pulpit during Mass that he was the Savior of Salem that he was, uh, you know, the creator of the universe. And uh, this all came to a head when he was uh, caught running red lights in Salem one night, and what he told the police who pulled him over was that he had special rights because he was the savior and that, you know, he, the lights didn't apply to him because more or less he was telling them he was God. So not only not only did he think that he was god but you know he thought he was above the laws of physics that another car coming the <laughs> other way wouldn't hit him if he ran a red light yeah baby <laughs> so uh the, but there again there were a lot of ritual elements that seem like freemasonry within what he was doing to uh a couple of his girlfriends including the lobotomized woman who may i add he had a hand in murdering but was never prosecuted for he uh basically she took an overdose of drugs and he left and came back when she knew she would be dead and then called the police. Uh, how much homosexuality uh, went on? Um, well, that, that brings us to the case of a name you probably heard a lot, Father Paul Shanley. Yeah. Father Paul Shanley was a priest in the Archdiocese of Boston who in the 1970s and 80s ran uh, a wayward minister, a uh, wayward uh ministry for runaway mm -hmm. children and teenagers. Uh, he sexually abused a lot of the teenagers and pre-teen boys that he encountered in his street ministry. Basically, he went out and uh, recruited street kids and offered them material aid and food and shelter and clothes, mostly material things, but he seduced a great many of them. Now, uh, there's a strange link because he used to recruit 
uh, boys out of a place called Cardell's Cafe in Harvard Square in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was kind of a hippie hangout. Now, a Protestant youth worker who was working back then said that he saw Paul Shanley talking with members of the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which is a satanic church, which also used to recruit out of Cardell's Cafe, and he shared information with them about the whereabouts of wayward boys and girls. So uh, it, it's very, very strange. You have an occult link there. Now, uh, Shanley was uh, pretty much openly gay. The archdiocese used to try and put the clamps on him, but he always used to threaten the then Cardinal of Boston, Mon uh, uh, Cardinal Medeiros, with exposing the whole gay cabal within the church. Now, Paul Shanley is also the one of the founding members and the spiritual father of NAMBLA, the okay. North American right. Man-Boy Love Association. So he was a strong gay activist and a strong man-boy love activist, and he used to uh, go to NAMBLA meetings and even Catholic Church meetings and make outrageous statements like, sex between adults and children is normal, and sex yeah. between children and animals is normal. Now, what happened to Shanley is he, it got so hot here that the uh, Catholic Church kind of got rid of him. He went out to Palm Springs in California, and with another Catholic priest named Father White, he opened up two gay hotels called the Whispering Palms and the Cabana Club, and these were motels that uh, catered to pedophiles on an international level. And Shanley had, uh, he used to say mass at a church in California, and he used to recruit preteen and teen boys to come to this uh, gay motel, the Whispering Palms, and sexually service rich pedophiles who came from all over the world to go there. Uh, Shanley has sent, since been sent to prison for the rest of his life, and his uh, partner, Father White, who uh, technically owned the Cabana Club in the Whispering Palms, committed suicide in Thailand after Shanley was arrested. So you have this huge gay pedophile Nambla cult mm -hmm. right under the surface in the Archdiocese of Boston, which there again has international connections. Whenever you mention or anybody mentions the S word, I always have to ask, do we really think he was, uh, did he commit suicide or was he suicided? Um, the Father White in Thailand? Yeah. It could be a case of either. Uh, I would suspect that he committed suicide because he faced uh, a long prison term okay. upon his return to the United States. But it's within the realm of possibilities that someone knocked him off to shut him up. I, 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 I'm very suspicious of suicides okay. now. Right. A friend of mine, Gary Webb, right. was suicided. He's someone I emailed and spoke to on the phone with a few times. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson, who I met once many years ago in California very briefly, also was suicided, uh, a.k.a. murdered. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I've known people who've, who've suffered the fate you're talking about. In the case of Father White, it could have gone anyway, but he did face a big sentence okay. here, so it, it, it might have been just a suicide. Uh, I want to move on to the, the core of the next book and, and how your research went uh, for both of these, but uh, um, I'm curious... Uh, you know, this is all male-driven. Have you ever come across anything that uh, there was some involvement by nuns? Oh, yes. Oh. oh, yes, definitely so. I don't cover it so much in my book, but uh, there's a film out on DVD called The Magdalene Sisters, mm -hmm. and this was a movie that was made in Ireland a few years ago. And um, what, what 
Magdalene houses were set up actually originally in medieval times to be reform houses for prostitutes. Mm -hmm. And over time, they became more or less slave labor camps. But the nuns who ran the Magdalene houses in Ireland used to sexually abuse the women and girls who were sent there, many of whom were just single mothers who, uh, you know, had children and were not married and then were sent there. Mm -hmm. Many of them were sexually abused by nuns for many, many years. Uh, they were also sexually abused by many of the priests who went there. Uh, on that DVD, the Magdalene Sisters, they also have a one-hour documentary that was made by Channel 4 in England where they uh, interview these women. And uh, there, there's nothing less than ritual abuse involved with a great deal of the sex that was forced upon them by nuns and priests. Did you ever find out what happens to these um, uh, sexual and uh, ritual abuse victims when it's over, whatever over means? Um, okay, most sexual abuse victims suffer a form of brainwashing of one sort or another. Basically, these are uh, most, most of these victims are from alcoholic homes. Uh, the Catholic Church targets their victims well. And someone raised in an alcoholic home is... Uh, you know, they're raised and conditioned to uh, cover up and take responsibility for the bad actions of adults. For example, uh, a mother might say, uh, Daddy wouldn't drink so much if mm -hmm. you'd keep your room cleaner. Right. You know, they're made to feel guilty. Mm -hmm. And they're also taught to lie for adults. Like, the father will say, don't tell Mommy I was drinking when she went out to the store. And this is how these kids live, and this is how they're actually raised. So by the time a kid like that is six or seven, he already is pretty much brainwashed, and all an abusive priest has to do is to step into an, uh, uh, the authority figure in this person's life, and they're already brainwashed. They can do more or less what they want. So uh, after these kids grow up and such, they're so used to lying and covering up and you know taking personal responsibility for the bad actions of others that they usually don't tell anybody about the abuse till many, many years later when they're middle-aged, when they start to get, you know, a bit of a bird's-eye view about their lives, they start to understand that they were victims. So uh, that's why you see so many former victims of clergy abuse actually coming out with their stories when they're in their late 30s and 40s. Before that time, they're still kind of under the spell of the brainwashing that went along with it, and remember, these priests tell these kids that it's the kid's fault that the sexual encounter happened. Right. So they have a strong, strong sense of guilt. And it's not till they hit middle age that they're even able to see that they're victims as opposed to victimizers. What about the fate of, let's say, those, those dungeon captives? Um, a, a lot of them, like the ten that came forward, basically they were dumped when they got too old to... Um, sexually service right. men anymore and uh they just went back out into society and many of them had very hard homes uh, uh, hard lives as well and they pretty much kept it quiet uh for many years until this judge came out and did a general call for former victims and out of the 10 that came forward there's probably thousands of others who are probably still under the spell of the brainwashing or uh, a big thing I get, I get a lot of letters from people, letters and emails from people who were victims of uh, clergy sexual abuse 
who don't want to come forward or sue or anything because they have families of their own now and they don't want their own children to know this happened to them until they're adults. You know, they don't, they don't want their kids to have to suffer what may, you know, what other people might say or kids at school. So a lot of people are quiet because they want to protect their families. The other thing I get, get, and this is very sad, Viz, I get a lot of, uh, snail mail letters from people who are in uh, various houses of corrections mm-hmm. and even mental institutions who are victims of pedophile priests. And they basically say that their, their lives went down after the sexual abuse. And many of them turned to drugs and alcohol, or in some cases the drugs and alcohol were actually introduced to them by their sexual abusers who were clergy. So, uh, I mean, they have horrible lives. They have trouble keeping jobs. They have drug and alcohol dependency problems. They have horrible, horrible problems with authority and authority figures. They can't tolerate their boss. And uh, many of them, their lives just completely, they're, they're so fallen apart that I'll give you an example. One of the people that was supposed to testify against Paul Shanley in his trial, which was just a few months ago, uh, he, he, you know, he b- started drinking again and just disappeared back into the homeless population. Mm-hmm. The last he was seen, he was drinking alcohol. So um, many of them just, you know, they have horrible lives and usually wind up drug and chemically dependent, you know. Uh, this is the second hour of the Grassy Knoll. Um, it's been uh, two heavy hours, and we're with right now William, William H. Kennedy, the author of Lucifer's Lodge, Satanic Ritual Abuse in the Catholic Church. We're going to talk about his next title uh, in a minute, and that is Satanic Crime, A Threat in the New Millennium. His website is williamhkennedy.com. And um, have you ever heard of Dr. Ellen Lachter? I've heard of Dr. Ellen Lachter, yes. Well, she preceded you, so, I mean, you can imagine these have been two uh, kind of uh, heavy-duty hours. Oh, right, 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 yeah. Yeah, if you get a chance, you can check out her site, too, because she mentions the uh, the different um, categories of abuse. Uh, one of them was the Stockholm Syndrome. Um, so uh, you might want to peruse that. I don't know if she'd be a source for you, but she's uh, she's uh, really uh, de- very dedicated to I'll, trying I'll to... I'll certainly take a look okay. at it. Okay. Now... Um, before we go into the to your next one, uh, your next book, Satanic Crime, and I don't, I really want them to buy the book, so I'm not going to drain you for what's in there. But uh, you know, during your research, even though you said you mined a lot of the information from uh, mainstream newspapers, if anybody got wind, and I'm sure they did, of what you were doing, um, did you have any um, har- harassment or? Oh, I, I've uh, I uncovered what turned out to be a legitimate hit on my life, a contract on my life, which came about, which I found out about through a very roundabout way I can't get into, okay. but the people have paid to try to have me killed, which kind of uh, backed up in their face, and I get daily phone and email harassment and threats and all sorts of things, but this one particular case, it was an acute case of someone who solicited someone from organized crime to have me killed and have it look either like a suicide or an accident. That that was the conditions of the contract. All right, you don't have to go. You can say whatever you wish or nothing at all about this. But I'm just curious. Did you did you realize the event had occurred, or did, did you find about this in in, um, in uh, retrospect? I found out about it in retrospect because a uh, I can't say which, but a member of a fully made member of a, a crime organization in the Massachusetts area 
was offered the job. And the thing is, most even organized crime people don't want anything to do with pedophilia mm -hmm. and don't want anything to do with pedophilia cover-up because if they're ever sent to prison and it's found out that they did this, it's pretty much a death sentence for them. Uh, so this person informed me as a means to deflect such attention off himself. He did not want to be involved in getting rid of a pedophile researcher who was trying to expose pedophiles. I can't get too much into it because okay. if I do, I, I, his identity might become known, and I certainly don't okay. want that. I don't like this person's way of life. I don't like what he does, but I certainly appreciate the fact that he tipped me off to this. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Um <laughs> Uh, what about satanic crime? How much can you tell us about it? In, in other words, why is it a threat in the new millennium? Okay, my book, Satanic Crime, basically looks at cases of serial killers who were also uh, Satanists. And what I found in my research is that the, the cases I cover, many of them had strong connections to the federal government. And I will give you one off the bat, Charles Manson. In 1967, Charles Manson was in prison doing a 10-year uh, federal stretch for grand theft auto and pimping. Uh, he went before a parole board, and uh, what he told the parole board was, is if you let me out, I will reoffend. I want to stay. Let me at least do my last year. Prison is my home. I don't know how to function out there. He begged the parole board not to release him. And this federal parole board, what did they do? They gave him a hundred bucks and a one-way ticket to San Francisco, and in two or three months he had the family formed who went on a murderous rampage. So uh, you have to remember, all the federal government has to do to cause trouble, and I believe they're in, involved in a program of managed chaos, mm -hmm. which basically means they keep things crazy so they can stay on top of the power structure. Right. All they need to do is they, they have a bird's-eye view of the uh, federal prisons and federal federally run mental institutions, all they need to do is release the right sort of nut who will cause trouble. Yep. This is one of the things they do, and Manson was one of those nuts. And it's funny, I interviewed Vincent Bugliosi, who wrote Helter Skelter for my book, right. and what he told me was is he used to go up to Manson and uh, during the trial and said, you know, Charlie, no matter what, you're going to jail. And Manson used to say, you mean like the one you threw me out of? You mean the one that, you know, I never wanted to leave? Right. You know, you put someone like me on the street and you wonder that all chaos breaks out and now I'm demonized, you know? Sure. So you, 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 you get a lot of things like that, you know? Well, you mentioned uh, this before, and another individual who fits that mold was the Freeze. Who was who was mysteriously released? Supposedly walked away from prison out in California. Right. And then he becomes uh, involved, or he is the point person for the SLA. Right. Into which Patty Hearst was uh, right. uh, abducted. Right. Defries was re released under very very bizarre and very suspicious circumstances. That's another nut who should have never been left out of the let out of the federal nut bowl, for well, lack of a better term. Well, there's never an end to them, by the way. So. <laughs> oh, I know, and, and remember, the federal government has the key to how they get in and out, you know, so they, they got a link there. Now, Klebold and Harris, I have a chapter on them. Now, Klebold and Harris were actually Satanists. Uh, Eric Harris actually posted a picture he drew of Satan orchestrating his shootings 
from hell, which he posted on his webpage about an hour before he went to the bowling alley and met Klebold, and it's after that they went on the shooting spree. That wasn't really uh, put in much by the mainstream media. They didn't emphasize that. It was reported the next day by uh, CNN and then dropped. Um, but there again, um, there's a federal link there because Eric Harris's father was an Air Force officer. Uh, did you get any information that both of them were on uh, psychotropic drugs? I think Harris uh, Eric was. Harris was yeah. on a serotonin drug that he had gone off of. Now, I get asked about this a lot. I was asked about it on another show. What I say is that these uh, serotonin drugs put people on an emotional roller coaster. Right. Like they get a great euphoria, but then a great crash comes, and that's mm -hmm. where we get the expression, up your meds, right. which has come into the mainstream lingo. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that uh, uh, giving a serotonin psychotropic drug to someone like Eric Harris who's already very emotionally disturbed that downswing, that down roller coaster, so to speak, combined with these insane ideas they have already, will catapult them into actually taking drastic action. Now, I have a chapter on Jeff Weiss. He was the boy at the Indian Reservation who shot up his high school a few months ago. Right. And I'm told he was on one of these serotonin psychotropic drugs as well. So they seem to play into it. But remember, the main distributors of uh, psychotropic drugs is the U.S. federal government. Yeah, they yeah. do it through Medicaid and Medicare and, uh, you know, military-type medical services. And they back a lot of the pharmacies who actually produce these products. So there's even behind that, there's a link to the U.S. federal government. Uh, and the little time we got, do you want to touch upon the uh, Gannon situation? Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, Jeff Gannon threatened to sue me because I said on another show, A Closer Look, hosted by Michael Corbin, right. that I thought he was Johnny Gosh, the boy who was reportedly abducted by Satanists in the uh, early 1980s. And what I wanted to do was pay for a DNA test between uh, Jeff Gannon and Noreen Gosh to settle this matter once and for all scientifically. And Jeff Gannon, uh, he didn't affirm or deny that he was Johnny Gosh. He sent me an email saying he would initiate legal action if I kept saying this, and I'm saying it now, I think he is Johnny Gosh. Right. And I would like to, him to prove or disprove that with a DNA test. All right, we only got a minute left, but I wanted to say that if Gosh and Gannon are one and the same, we know, for instance, what is, he's, is being proffered uh, to the Republican uh, uh, National Committee members over there. But it also is very interesting because it might explain why Nelson got picked up and why Thompson is dead. Yes, very much so. Now, Hunter S. Thompson mentioned a pedophile cult in his last book called Hey Rube. So right. So it's very, very suspicious. And, of course, Benacci, in the, uh, uh, a witness for the prosecution in the Franklin cover-up, right. identified Thompson as a snuff film director. Yes, he did. William H. Kennedy, that's his website, .com. And his two books are Lucifer's Lodge and Satanic Crime. We're giving you short versions on that. Listen, William, we want to thank you so much for coming on. Sure, anytime. And listen, and uh, best to your brother, okay? Very good. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.